0: It's good to see you all here this morning. Glad you're here. We're winding up a series on the life of John the Baptist, Surviving Life's Deserts. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've taken a, a peek at John's life. We've, we've looked at his uniquenesses, and we've also looked at the powerful message that he preached, this message of John the Baptist. By the way, I've had a lot of people ask me through the years, just people who kind of don't really know the story, and they say, you know, Was John the Baptist the founder of the Baptist church, or was the Baptist church named after John the Baptist? Well, of course, neither one of those are true. Uh, As a matter of fact, I think it would be clearer in the New Testament if it said John the Immerser or John the Baptizer. As opposed to John the Baptist, because it describes more of what he did. And John got this incredible title based on what he did. He preached and he invited people to come to know to to repentance and it, then was they were baptized in the Jordan. Now you say, but but didn't the, the, the Jews have ceremonial cleansings? Yes, they did. They had all kinds of those, but those were self-administered. What made John so unique in his ministry is he said, You must let me baptize you you. It was the first time there was a call of submission, and and the people found his message and his ministry so unique that they gave him the title that described his work, John, the one who immerses people in the Jordan, John the Immerser. So powerful was his ministry. As a matter of fact, he's kind of a paradox in a lot of ways. He knew what it was like to survive through life's deserts despite that. And though he didn't run with the popular crowd, he was immensely popular throughout Judea. Though his personal style of this scratchy camel hair garment and the things that he ate was was a bit unorthodox, he was never offensive to people in that manner. Though he was never married, he was not a loner, his disciples had a deep respect for his leadership and his teaching. And though his preaching on repentance was both powerful, bold, and polarizing, it drew great crowds to hear him preach and to be baptized at the Jordan River. Now that's where we've seen John up to this point in time. But there is another facet of John's life that we cannot overlook. It, it, we need to explore what happened as his prophetic star began to wane. And I believe this last chapter of his life was the toughest chapter of his life. To understand <clears throat> what happens here, You need to know a little bit about the religious, spiritual, political climate that's going on in Judea at that time. When Jesus was born, Herod the Great was king. But when Herod the Great died, Caesar Augustus divided his kingdom among his sons. And so several of his sons ruled over different Territories. Now we're going to have a a map up here. You need to see this map to understand what's going on. Herod Antipas, all right? was ruler over the area of Galilee and Perea. <clears throat> that was the region that he had inherited. Galilee was the home for Jesus. That's where mo- most of Jesus's earthly ministry took place was Galilee. John's ministry was in Perea. That's where he was along the Jordan River where he called people to this repentance and uh, this this baptismal peace. Uh, piece. uh the ancient Jewish historian Josephus provides some non-biblical confirmation of what happens here. It's kind of an interesting story. And and John and both Jesus fit into this picture. Herod Antipas, all right, uh, the the son of Herod the Great, who rules over Galilee and Perea, decides that because the Nabataean Empire, see it down there in the right-hand corner, borders Perea, that it would be good if he married the daughter of the king Aretas there, so that there would be a pact, a peace between those two. Now, that's not really anything unusual. We've seen these kinds of political marriages take place throughout history. And so, he married uh, the Nabataean princess, made her his wife. Well, sometime later, Herod goes to Rome. Herod Antipas goes to Rome. And and while he's in Rome, he stays with his half-brother, one of his half-brothers, okay? And while he's staying with his half-brother, he falls in love with his half-brother's wife, whose name is Herodias. Okay, trouble is brewing. What you need to know, this this gets more kinky as we go on, all right? (laughs) Herodias. Herodias is the daughter of another half-brother of Herod Antipas, which makes her his niece. So, Herod, Antipas, and Herodias, they fall in love, and they decide to elope, and Herodias says, I will not elope with you until you divorce your other wife. And so, he's in a quandary. You know, they've got peace between these two nations, and the Nabataean nation, boy, they were powerful. He wants to keep the peace. He wants to marry Herodias, so he decides he's going to divorce her anyway. Well, news gets back to homeland, and his wife finds out about what's going on, and she runs home to daddy, as you can understand, and King Aretas just puts this in the back of his mind. He waits for the right moment to come. In the midst of all of this patent play stuff, Herod... Hears from John the immerser, and John says, You ought not to marry your brother's wife. This is unlawful to marry your brother's wife. And he says, Why, whose law? You can just hear him say, Whose law? It's not Rome's law. And he's right. Rome didn't care what he did, Rome didn't have laws about morality. No, John is preaching to him out of God's word. You see, Herod was king, a king of the Jewish nation. He should know better. And so he says, "You can't do this; it's unlawful." Nevertheless, Antipas and Herodias got married, which made Herod his own nephew, <laughs> or his own uncle. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure you go, go goes either way that way. Herodias was not a woman to be spurned by such preaching, and she wanted to put John to death immediately. Herod knows that because John is so popular that to put him to death would to to create a riot, and so he compromises and puts John in prison. Now, I want you to just fast forward just a little bit here to the year 36 AD. It's just a few years later when Herod is beginning to relax about all this. That's when Aretas, king of the Nabataeans, invades Perea, his former father-in-law. Remember? And he just whoops Antipas and the army. So much so that Antipas goes into hiding. He, he is exiled and history never hears from him again. Here's the lesson, guys. Don't mess with a father-in-law who's armed and dangerous. <laughs> so John then is incarcerated in the prison, Macarus, on the northeast shore of the Dead Sea, and it is there that things begin to happen in its own heart and soul. Two important lessons grow out of this episode in what becomes the tragic conclusion to an influential life, and both grow out of a spirit of courage. The first has to do with fearless convictions, and the second has to do with doubts, and both of those things grow out of a spirit of courage. Let's talk, let's talk about fearless convictions for a moment. Fear is something that we all face, and it can come at any time in life, and it can come from any direction in our lives. Being fearful is not the issue. It's how we handle our fears that determines the outcome. In a commencement speech, actor Jim Carrey spoke to the graduates and told them this, fear is going to be a player in your life, but you get to decide how much. He's right. You can't prevent fear in your life. You can't prevent fearful moments from happening. But you get to choose how it impacts your life. Now, you can surrender to fear, or you can conquer your fear. Much of our fear, I think, grows out of the unexpected moments in life. You go to the doctor for something routine or what you think is routine, and you walk out of the office in shock and fear because you've discovered you have a life-threatening condition, and the outcome is a little bit up for grabs. You weren't expecting that, but now you've got fear because of it. Or you work hard and diligently, and one day the boss comes in and tells you that you are one of his best employees, that that there isn't anybody better on the payroll than you are, but he has sold the company, and the new employer doesn't want any of the old employees. He's going to staff the business by his team, and you are now out of a job, and suddenly fear grips your heart. Despite your work ethic, you are now out of a job, and at your age, you don't know how to start this process, you don't know where to turn, and fear just envelops you. We have to deal with these according to our trust in God. Nobody can prepare for the unexpected. That's why we call it the unexpected. And so when it happens, our only recourse is to trust God, turn to God and say, you've got to get me through this because I don't know where I'm going and I am gripped with fear. But I hope, I hope that your trust in God will be greater than your fear of the situation. That's not the situation with John. John's fear did not come about as the result of something unexpected happening. Quite the contrary, John embraced his fear because he knew what he had to do because Herod was acting in a way that was contrary to God's Word, and he could have ignored it. He could have said, hey, what happens in Herod's palace is his business. That's no part of me. But he says, this is God's leader over his people. I must confront him with his sin." John was not anxious to be incarcerated in a rat-infested prison where people were treated worse than animals. But he could not, he could not ignore the Word of God. And his fearless conviction was stronger than his fearful situation. Now, now John was not a stranger to bold talk. John was not afraid to speak for God. We, We know this from what he had said on other occasions. As a matter of fact, I want to take you back to Matthew chapter 3 verse 7. And this is a conversation that John has when the, scribe, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees come out to the Jordan River to hear what he's saying. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the religious elite of, of Judea. They were the upper crust of the religious society. They are, they are the ones that should have been the people to look up to with great, well, reverence to a certain degree to follow what they were doing, but they weren't genuine in their faith. And John knew it. Now, listen to what John said. I'm going to read this, by the way, out of the translation called The Message. When John realized that a lot of Pharisees and Sadducees were showing up for a baptismal experience because it was becoming the popular thing to do, he exploded. Brood of snakes. What do you think you're doing slithering down here to the river? Do you think a little water on your snake skins is going to make any difference? It's your life that must change, not your skin. And don't think you can pull rank by claiming Abraham as father. Being a descendant of Abraham is neither here nor there. Descendants of Abraham are a dime a dozen. What counts is your life. Is it green and blossoming because of its dead wood? It's going into the fire. Now, if I have preached like that early on in my ministry, I would not be in ministry today. <laughs> That's bold talk. Dale Carnegie, author of How to Win Friends and Influence People, would have failed at John if he had spoke so abrasively. But John was a prophet who said what needed to be said. Besides that, folks, he's preaching to the choir you do understand that, don't you? The Pharisees and Sadducees were also Jewish people. The recipients of his blast were the religious leaders. I told you a minute ago, this is not some outsider group. This is, not, this is not Rome. We never have an example of John railing against Rome. He is talking to God's people who are held to a higher standard of accountability, and he's telling these religious leaders of their phoniness and their faker. When he accused Herod of sinful behavior, John was right, but it was a costly speech. Herod should have been living as the leader of God's people, but he was just living like any other person with the power that was available to him. John, in essence, was saying, you know better, Herod. You need to get your act right. It's a sin for you to marry your brother's wife, who's also your niece. Was a man of courageous conviction, and sometimes, sometimes when you have convictions, fear can come with them. Are, are you a Christian of courageous conviction this morning? Does what you believe impact who you are, what you do, and how you live? Is this Christian life something you put on for Sunday morning and then you take off for the other six days of the week? Do you stand up for what is right because it is right or only when it's convenient? What would you do if tomorrow you go into work and your boss asks you to do something unethical like lie to a customer or cheat a client? How will you handle that? Will you just acquiesce? Will you just surrender and say, well, this, it's, it's my job. This is what i got to do. I, you know, I wouldn't normally do this, but the boss said... I wouldn't suggest that you take John's tone and call him a snake in the grass. That would not be the right approach. But I wouldn't tell you to acquiesce either. Yes, you have to answer to your boss. Yes, there is fear if you push back. But you and I will also answer to God. And that's a greater fear. And I would not suggest that you simply refuse. That's probably not a good way to handle it either. What I would suggest you do is put some thought and prayer into it and respond with a better answer or approach. Give your boss an idea that keeps the whole situation honest and above reproach and yet accomplishes the very same thing. What, I, what I've discovered through the years is that people appreciate an honest answer. That they appreciate an honest explanation, even if it's not the one they want to hear, because they appreciate the honesty behind it. Most people know when you're blowing more smoke than a chimney on fire anyway, and so don't try to hide the truth. Just be gentle with the truth. But would you, would you push back gently with a better idea, Or would you just acquiesce to what the boss had asked you to do? You see, convictions matter. As I understand it, the U.S. Supreme Court draws a clear distinction between conviction and preference. They used to, and I'm assuming they still do. A preference is a very strong belief held with great strength. Uh, you can spend your life believing in that preference. You can spend your money supporting that preference. You can even teach your children that they might believe that preference as well, but the Supreme Court will still rule that it is a preference. Preference. A preference, you see, is a strong belief, but a belief that you will change under the right circumstances. Circumstances like peer pressure, or family influence, or potential lawsuits, or incarceration, or maybe even the threat of death. In other words, you got to ask yourself the question would I die for my preference? A conviction on the other hand, is a belief that you will not change. For no one, for no thing, not even the threat of death. And here's the bottom line. Preferences aren't protected by the Constitution. Convictions are. A conviction is rooted in the very core of our being. A conviction on the inside will always be visible on the outside with our lifestyle and behavior. To violate our convictions we would view as sin. Now take a look at your faith and your relationship with Jesus Christ and answer this question. Is it a preference or is it a conviction? Would you compromise your faith in Jesus Christ for peers or family or are you willing to die for your faith? John was a man of convictions and the times in which we live demand that we be a people of conviction, not preference, and it will take courage to be a people of conviction. And when you speak to those who do not share our faith or share our convictions, share your convictions in a loving manner. Remember, they're not a part of the family. They're not in the choir, so to speak. We want them to be a part of the family. So share gently your convictions so that you have the opportunity to speak into their life. There is a second facet of John's last days that also speaks of his courage. I mentioned it earlier. John's ministry was winding down. That, by the way, in itself can be a difficult time. When you've been a person of influence like John was and then suddenly you are not a person of influence, boy, that's a a tough position to be. Add to that the fact that he had been in prison for about 10 months in this place that was probably nothing more than a pit in the ground, not like our prisons today. And John begins... to to reconsider what he has believed. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, John's disciples come to Jesus. Now, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one? Are you the one that was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now, this is John who baptized Jesus. This is John who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now it's John saying, "Are Are you the one? or should I expect somebody else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. You say, John? John the Baptist doubted? Yes! Yes! And I'm just a bit frustrated with the fact that only Thomas gets pegged with this doubting business. I'm here to tell you, John's doubts were just as real as Thomas's doubts. But no, only Thomas has to wear that moniker all throughout history. Sorry, I'm just a little sensitive to that. But I will be forever grateful for this passage of Scripture. Look at what else Jesus said right after that. The disciples go back to John. Then Jesus says to the crowd, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus didn't say, can you believe that, John? After all we've been through together, he's a cousin of mine, he baptized me, and he has the nerve to ask if I'm the one. Jesus didn't say anything like that. He knew what was going on in John's mind and heart. When you're struggling, when you've got tough times, when you're going through periods of doubt, God understands what's going on in your life, in your heart, in your mind, no, he says, I want you to know that among those born of women, there is not one greater than John. That, that's quite a statement considering the likes of Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and a whole host of others. Why so great? Because John was the one that paved the way for Christ. He was the forerunner. John is the one that broke 400 years of God's silence from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the gospels. John was a man of incredible humility. He's the one that said, "Jesus must increase, I must decrease." But don't miss the second part, Jesus went on to say, "Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he." And you say, well, that'd be us. How can that be? Ah, John lived before the cross, and at the cross, everything changed. We know Jesus as Savior. He has placed His Holy Spirit into our lives. We are a part of a greater covenant of grace We're not greater than John, but the position that we find ourselves in is a greater position than what he found himself in still living under the Old Testament covenant. So when you and I have doubts in our life, we are in good company. And I do have doubts on occasion. I have more questions about life in this unfair world than I have answers. Yesterday was Cole Winnefeld's celebration of life service. When an 11-year-old boy who loves the Lord dies, it's really hard. And the why questions flood our minds. I don't have answers. And it's on such occasions that I find myself asking, do I believe what I've preached for 40 years? Is it okay to have doubts? Yeah. It's not okay to go on without answering your doubts. It's not okay just to to surrender to your doubts, but it's okay to have doubts. Doubts deserve an answer. So, what do we do with our moments of uncertainty? Well, before I give you some ways to do that, I want you to remember when these doubts often come. They are far more likely in times of distress and discouragement. John was a man of the wide open desert. Now he is confined to this pit-like cell. Once he was surrounded by the crowds, now he finds himself all alone. Once he had been a great leader for God, now he's being treated like a common criminal. This is a distressing, discouraging turn of events. It's no wonder John was heartbroken. And in the heartbroken moments of life, the doubts come easily. I think John was sometimes dealing with unfulfilled expectations. I think he was looking at the ministry of Jesus and saying, I didn't think he'd do it that way. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that was the plan. Really? We understand that. When you pray and your prayer doesn't get answered like you pray it, do you ever say, What's up with God? Does he really care? Is he really there? Is he listening? Does he still answer? Is there really a God? You see, unfulfilled expectations also bring us to these moments of doubt. So what can I do when I have doubts? Let me give you three real quick answers. First of all, take time to investigate your doubts. Don't just say, I got doubts, I guess I'll believe them. Investigate, ask questions, take time to study, seek wise counsel from other people who maybe aren't going through the discouraging time that you're going to, whose life is is okay, so they can so they can see it from the unclouded perspective. All right? I find that the best answers are at our fingertips in the Word of God. When John said to the disciple, or John sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one? Jesus didn't send back the answer, well, yes, of course. Get with it, John. He quoted Scripture. You go back and you tell John, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's, that's a quote from Scripture. You you see, I believe that our doubts are best answered when we know the Word of God. So, when the doubts come, do some investigation. Talk to people. Dig deeply in God's Word. Study, study, study. Because the answers are at our fingertips for most of our questions. Here's another thing. Stick close to other Christians. When you're discouraged, when you're downhearted, when you're having these periods of doubt, that's not the time to say, I'm not going to church today. Or, I'm not going to go to my my group. I I can't be around people at this moment. Now, maybe there's a day or two where that's okay in your deep sorrow. But I'm telling you, when it's tough, that's when you need the church. That's when you need others more than ever. Which brings me to this point, if you're not in a life group, that is like a, a life preserver at times and periods of doubt. So, I want you to get plugged into a life group because when you're hurting, this is the group that'll come around you and say, We will hold you up and help you find the answers. And and, and then, thirdly, watch your attitude. When we are hurt, it is easy to lick our wounds and feel sorry for ourselves. And that prompts this negative, I'm just going to give up kind of a spirit, which will destroy us. So, keep your attitudes up. I've always appreciated these words etched on a wall in a World War II concentration camp. I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in love even when I don't feel it. And I believe in God even when he is silent. Watch your attitude. So what happened to John? Did John get out of prison? Yes, sort of. The story is kind of interesting. Herod throws himself a birthday party and his stepdaughter, Herodias's daughter, now his stepdaughter performs a sensuous d- dance in front of Herod that so delights the drunken king that he offers to give her anything she wants up to half of his kingdom. Must have been some dance. Coached by her devious mother, She asks for the head of John the Immerser on a silver platter. She was probably a teenager. Of all things that teenagers would ask for, that would not be your normal request. I want the head of John on a silver platter back in camp days, this all, when we had Bible drama night and all the camp teams, you know, this was one of the favorite kinds of Bible dramas to play out. You'd find a, a table that had a hole in the top of it, and you'd put a tablecloth on it, and you'd stick a kid underneath the table. And some, you know, in the middle of the story, somebody would come in with this, cardboard covered with aluminum foil to make it look like a silver platter and a big old pot on the top of it. They'd set it over the hole, and the kid would stick his head up through the hole. They'd pull off the pot, and there was this kid with his head sticking out of the hole, John the Baptist, his head on a platter, you know. I think at this moment, you've got to see the grisly nature of Herod. Here he sits, and his wife, and his stepdaughter, and they come in carrying a silver platter with the head of John. If I had been God at that moment, I would have called for a miracle. All right? This is where I would have had John open his eyes, look straight at Herod and Herodias, and then speak, it's still not right for you two to be married. <laughs> but I'm not God, and it's a good thing, but that's what I would have done. Folks, on your tough days, when the bottom has fallen out, when when your doubts have just reached a pinnacle, will you remember this? If God did not step in to intervene and stop the death of the man who Jesus said was the greatest man born of woman, then do not be disappointed if he doesn't intervene to answer your prayers the way you prayed them, I trust that God knew best, that John's ministry was done. It was time for him to come home, and where John ended up was much better than where he had been. Not the way we would have played it out, but you need to know that the God who loved John more than life itself loves you more than life itself. And even when you cannot see how he's working, he's working. By the way, I didn't answer my question a few minutes ago. After 40 years of preaching, do I still believe what I've preached? I cannot explain why bad things happen to good people other than to say the world we live in is not the way God designed it. It shattered when sin entered this world, and it needs someone to fix it. I've looked in vain for someone to fix this world And I cannot find Him anywhere else, except in the person of Jesus Christ. I cannot find any theory, ideology, or religious creed that is more logical, rational, or powerful than the one that is spelled out in God's Word. I cannot find a message of redemption anywhere else, like that which is proclaimed by His church for the last 2,000 years. I cannot find a relational God who wants to be my loving Father in any other religion. I cannot find grace in any other belief system. I cannot find forgiveness paid for or salvation promised by any other Savior. And I cannot find hope that equals the assurance of the Lord's return and the hope of eternal life in heaven so do i believe what i've preached for the last 40 years of my life with all my heart it's not my preference it is my conviction is it yours this isn't about our preferences this is about who he is and what we believe and how we follow.